Are we going to jump right into it? Is that what we're doing? No, do you, I mean, do you have anything uh, funny no. to say? Uh, hi. <laughs> hi, Sean. So, you sent me this thing, which yeah, uh, some, you're doing things with TracePoint. Yeah, so maybe I should back up and start with some context as to as to what I'm actually doing. Mm -hmm. So, Shopify is a very large code base. Basically, contrary to the internal messaging, we're totally just switching to SOA. Even though everybody's trying to say, like, no, but we're not switching to SOA, we're still monolith. We're, we're basically switching to SOA. Mm -hmm. But we're trying to do it in a way that there's not really any a new boundary that's getting introduced it's, you know, SOA kind of architecture, but just still all in the same process. Okay. So basically everything in our code base has been separated out into components, which are like primitives that represent single parts of e-commerce, like sales, online store, shipping, that sort of thing. Now we need to start decoupling them. And so we've been looking at building tooling to help basically tell you how decoupled you are. Okay. And so we've got a convention for how components go about defining their public API. And the idea is that basically just if you are touching something from another component and that it is not part of that component's public API, then that is a violation. So if you call a method and the receiver of that method isn't part of the component's public API, that's a violation. If you inherit from anything which includes modules that isn't part of its public API, that's a violation. If you have an active record association to another component, no matter what, that's a violation. Okay, so there's, this is obviously, this goes beyond the protection of like public and private that you get out of Ruby. You've had to do mm -hmm. some things to make this happen. Yeah, I mean, we care more about like classes themselves. One of the things that we're going to do is go into every component and make every single constant private and then create a deprecate, a public deprecated constant, which points to the new private one. But anyway, so, so one of the things we need to do though, I say, so when I say like when you call a method, and the receiver of the method is a class from another component, and that class is not part of the public API, we consider that violation. So to answer that, we need to set, we need to know, is this class from another component? And so to do that, I need to know the file that every class is defined in. You know, unlike methods, there's no class.source location, which, which kind of makes sense because classes are just objects. And while methods are also just objects, you can't reopen a method, whereas you, you can reopen a class. You're shaking your head. Uh, you can well, redefine a method. You can redefine you a method. Yes, you can't. You can't. Yes, that is correct. But so you actually need three trace points to do this, which is kind of funny to me. But the most common way to define a class is is using the class keyword in Ruby. And so trace points are a object-oriented API around kernel set trace func, which basically is just a function that gets called a lot. If you've ever looked at anybody demonstrate Ripper, the thing that shows you Yarv instructions. You'll notice that literally every line of Ruby code has like five or six trace instructions, mm -hmm. and those are all calling this trace function. And so trace points just a nicer API around it that kind of filters out what you receive. So one of the events that you can get is you can subscribe to the class event, which only covers classes defined using the class keyword. But then in that case, there's a bunch of stuff you can get from trace points. One of them is the value of self wherever this event occurred. So in the case of a class keyword, self is the class that's being defined. You can also get the path and the line number where this event occurred. So that's that's what I'm doing is as early as humanly possible. I've got this trace point where I subscribe to all class definitions and I say if it's not a singleton class and if I didn't do that, then whenever you do class 
double arrow self, I would get additional stuff that I don't want. Yeah, just make people stop doing that. It is the only way to have private work with uh, class functions. Yeah, so don't do that. <laughs> okay. Doctor, it hurts when I do this. <clears throat> Sorry, I didn't want to derail you. Go ahead. I understand what you're getting at. So you've got this right. trace point thing. So, yeah, so if it's not a singleton class, and if the path starts with the directory to our application, then I keep track of the file, and I just I have a hash map where the key is the class and the, and the value is all of the files where, where this class was opened which hopefully is one, but you know, <laughs> Ruby, right? And it works fine, and it's great. And we have a bunch of tests around our behavior on this, and then CI hangs. We run our tests across 94 CI containers, and 93 of them reach 99% completion and then just hang until the uh, unicorn worker gets killed. Right. So I narrowed it down. I basically started removing because the thing is we had another library that we were using which was just capturing too much stuff and then like to filter it later we had to do you know object space each object module go in and see if the files it captured were in our app and that was that was extremely slow and so I figured well, let's just do the filtering when we're capturing and we can do much less work that way so I started removing like bit by bit piece each piece of this because I couldn't reproduce this locally. So there was no way for me to like just stick a binding pry in there and and figure out what's going on. Mm-hmm. So I just started removing each little piece of this to try and figure out which specific chunk was causing the problem. And it turned out the problem was the path checking. So then I figure, okay, I knew this was the most expensive part of this tr- of what I'm doing in this trace point. Like it's not expensive in the context of a request response cycle of ra- of a rails app but it is expensive compared to you know assigning to a hash map like i actually thought it was more expensive than it is i as part of this i looked at the source for string start with and it is not correct <laughs> so it's actually pretty fast cuz it's just doing memcomp <laughs> okay why would that not be correct so if you have like e with an umlaut over it mhm there you know there are 18 billion different ways to encode that mhm Right. Either way, the string starts with E with an umlaut. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the implementation, for example, in Rust is iterate over the characters of the first one if they match the characters of the whatever you gave it. Or it's more complicated because they have a pattern API. But basically, it's, you know, look at each individual character. And a character in Rust is considered to be a, a Unicode scalar. So it doesn't matter if you encoded it as E with an umlaut or E zero with join or umlaut mm-hmm. or E umlaut modifier. I think right. those are the three main ways to do it. They are, those all come down to the same single scalar. Right. So there's normalization, basically, that happens. I, I don't want to say authoritatively yes or no. I don't think it's the same thing as normalization. Okay. But there, yeah, there, it's... Conceptually, you know, some sort of normalization. Maybe not Unicode normalization as a proper noun, but right. some sort of normalization. Yes. And in Ruby, it's not doing that. If you encode that E with an umlaut two different ways, they're going to be not equal. Or it's not going to start with... It starts with rule turn false. Yeah, I would assume equality is probably the same way. I didn't look, but... Mm-hmm. So but I figured maybe something's defining a bunch of anonymous classes in a loop. At the, at the point where I was thinking that, I, I did not realize that this trace point only worked with the class keyword and that anonymous classes wouldn't get wouldn't even trigger this. Mm-hmm. But even that, it's like, sure, something could be doing class foo in a loop, I guess. And it made no sense why this would be happening, but I'm like, like I'm at a complete loss and I have no real way to debug at this point. I figure it's either this is more expensive than I thought and something's calling it a loop or like maybe we've got a bad string somehow where the comparison is like, you know, hanging forever, which I would expect it to seg fault really in that case. But anyway, uh, so I'm like, let's just see which of that it, that it is. So I did, you know, puts trace point dot self, which is the class and then puts 
trace point dot path mm -hmm. to see what it was. And then I realized that I can't put the class because there are some classes that just error if you do that. <laughs> but you can call inspect on them. Okay. So then I'm like, okay, puts trace point dot self dot inspect puts the path and and it doesn't hang. <laughs> and I've narrowed it down to just the call to inspect. If I just have a bare trace point dot self dot inspect before I check if the path starts with the path to Shopify, <laughs> it doesn't hang. At which point, if it was if it was just the inspect, I could totally believe there is some class that's getting created that like inspect mutates it, and mm -hmm. if inspect hasn't been called, like putting it in this hash map and retaining it somehow is very bad. I mean, that seems like a stretch, but I could believe that that's a thing. But the fact that the other thing to make it not hang is remove trace point dot path dot start with Shopify's path to the Shopify application. The fact that that also makes it uh, not hang, like it's it's an MRI bug because those are two completely unrelated things. Yeah. <laughs> so what are you going to do? Well, I'm going to put tracepoint.self.inspect mm -hmm. with a conditional on the Ruby version with a comment explaining what's going on. And basically when they update the Ruby version, like if it starts failing, they'll bump the, the conditional. The conditional. I'll probably also have it raise if it's on a higher Ruby version so that some just so that somebody goes and, and looks if mm -hmm. we need this anymore. And then the problem is I can't isolate this. So like I was thinking of asking some you know people I know on the on the Ruby core team like hey I've got this bug that's really funky and I can't can you take a look at this with me and help me make sure a it's a bug and b maybe you know help me get it fixed. I don't know what command to reproduce. Running just a random test file does not reproduce the issue. What is the CI that you run on at, uh, at buildkite? Oh okay, I have no idea what that is. Because I was gonna say you said you mentioned that like you can't get it to reproduce locally, but like if this were Circle, you could like connect with SSH into one of the hosts and play around with it there. But still, like yep. I was gonna suggest like writing some sort of test case. But I guess if it's there's no way for you to tell which one of the classes <laughs> is causing this, right? Well, I don't know that it is any specific class that's causing it, right? That's the thing. And you mentioned that like not all of the instances hang. The instance that doesn't hang, it's just because of an infrastructure failure and the container failed to start. And so we we treat that as past. All right. Yeah. <laughs> I learned that today, that that's the thing we do. And I also that is also my, my feeling on it. That's a thing you could do. Yep. Yep. I can SSH into a container. I can't. I, as far as I know, I cannot SSH into a running container. And so I don't know that it's specific to the environment. I think it's probably specific to like something about the command that is getting run. But even then, you know, it happens when I run over 15,000 tests from the Shopify suite at once is not a great... Yeah. But at least then I can S-trace. So I think we've talked before, you've said it's not a reasonable test suite to run locally. So is, no, that, is no. that why you haven't been able to reproduce it locally? No, or is it just, just because did you actually try and run the test suite locally and it doesn't reproduce? Oh, I don't even think we have a command to run the whole test suite locally. Okay. I could, I mean, I could probably just look at like what arguments to pass to bin CI mm -hmm. and see if that does does something could you like start binary searching through the tests that's running and see when it hangs I mean, and when it doesn't hang? I mean it's not any one test every container is failing and it's not like mm, and our true. test order is randomized so it's not even like it's a specific test it's when the test suite is done I'm assuming because it's almost always 99% that it hangs at when you say almost always what's the other percentage it's not like 40 I saw one where it hung at like 76 oh, but I also okay. haven't seen that since so I think I, I think it might have just been a fluke in like the log reporting Hmm. But I think it's probably when everything's actually done and just for whatever reason it hasn't printed. No, that, that wouldn't make sense. It must be when the last test class gets loaded because there's no reason my trace point would get run if everything's done. No more classes are getting defined. 
Well, well, there's no reason why something would hang until you call inspect either. But <laughs> true, true. But I'm 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 operating under the assumption that at least the line of code has to actually get executed when the hang occurs. Mm-hmm. But yeah, and so if it's 99, percent that'd make complete sense. If it's the last, well, not make sense, but you know, mm-hmm. as much sense as correlate. something is going to make here when the la- very last test class gets loaded. And if nothing else, when I did my printing everything out, I did confirm that just there's no classes getting defined that you wouldn't expect around the end. It's the test classes and occasionally whatever gem they are loading. Mm-hmm. Let me back up for a second. Okay. So you laid out some context as to why this is being done, but it sounds like you're going to have to build so much machinery to make this happen. Like you talked about having a way for components to declare a public API, which is going to have to go beyond like, hey, these are my public methods, right? No, I mean, it's, it's literally, it's in a folder called public API. Okay, so everything is going to be path-based, right? The permissions to things is going to be path-based then? I mean, we're going to then enforce it by making all constants not in the public API private constants. Okay, and so then what's the point of this part? So this is, this is so that we can tell people, hey, you have cross-component violations. Here's how many you have. Here's what percentage of your component is a violation. And here's the lines where they're occurring. And then what we, the other, one of the other things that we want to do that's more of a, a secondary goal is because most of these components do not have public APIs yet. I think only three of them have even started on building a public API surface. One of the other things that we want to add to this is, so there'll be a bunch of violations pointing at you know some piece of your component. Then there's not a lot they can do to fix it if there's no public API for them to use. So then the next useful metric we can give is a reverse of that. Here are the, the methods or classes in your component mm-hmm. that have the most people depending on them. You should prioritize exposing a public API wrapping this. Right. That makes sense. And so the way that you're doing that is by file path, because any other manner would require that people do work to declare these things manually. Right. Right. Do one bit of work to declare some things manually, and then we'll tell you how well you're doing. And then, right, so you need, you need it to be like, here's a report. Start yeah, working. And the root pieces of this, I mean, it's funny, the way, the rabbit hole that got me to this was just, we were using a gem. I was This was actually part of me making it so that the thing knew about belongs to associations. Because the gem that we were using to tell us what associations exist didn't handle them. And that's part of why I came in was because my first question was, why are you using a gem? This is something that Rails has public API for. That's really, really easy to use. <laughs> but then we were writing tests for it. And the class that, that we're changing to not use this gem needs this thing that was basically all of the classes, uh, a, a, an object that has information about all of the classes. And it was really, really slow. And this test took two minutes to run. And so I decided to spend some time on, why are we doing it this really slow way, and we have this other gem that we're using that like almost everything that it's doing is just a public method on class or module. The only thing that, that we're doing from it that is substantial behavior is using it to get the file that all classes were defined in, which even as I've been re-implementing, I've been realizing that their version is very, very imperfect and misses a lot of stuff. So I mentioned that you need a couple of trace points to do this because, um, you know, struct, right? In Ruby? Yes, I'm aware of structs. Yes, <laughs> I've used structs. So... If you are going to declare a struct called foo, do you write it as class foo inherits from struct.new or do you do foo equals struct.new do? Equals. Okay. That is what... uh, (laughs) Is that the correct answer? (laughs) I do it with class foo inherits inherits from. Yep. 
I only know that I do equals because I remember at some point reading a blog post somewhere that encouraged me to do it that way. I was thinking that too, and I was trying to remember why, and I've always done it the Inherits From way, and now that I'm doing this trace one, I'm like, oh no, Inherits From is way better because this shows up when somebody's trying to trace class definitions. (laughs) Um, But a lot of people, actually my pair didn't even know that you could do class foo Inherits From struct.new. And so there's a lot of stuff that's doing, you know, foo equals struct.new. So the way you have to do to capture those is you have to set up another trace point that triggers on both return and C return, and then check if the method that's being called is called new, mm-hmm. and if the class that defined that method inherits from module, and if the and if the call site is inside of Shopify, grab the return value of the method. Mm-hmm. One thing that's always bothered me about the equal sign, I get that the machinery for this is exactly the same under the hood, but if you just do struct.new, right, and, and you print that out, it's gonna be an anonymous class, it has no name. If right. you do struct.new.name, it returns nil. If you do constant foo equals struct.new, it defines the name method on that class to return foo. Const- and it's always really okay. bothered me that assigning to a constant mutates an object. Mm-hmm. And even though I get that you know, class foo is probably just literally relying on that exact same behavior, to me it makes much more sense that the class keyword implicitly defines the name method. Mm-hmm. Structs are weird. <laughs> it's not even structs. It's, 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 any, it's any, any, anything yeah. that inherits from module. While we were talking, I did try and Google like where I might have found this from, and I found, I don't think this is actually the article I was thinking about, but I found an article from Henrik, I never know how to say his name, but I've read a bunch of his stuff before. NYH is how you say his last name. He's from Sweden. And it's called Struct Inheritance is Overused, and it's, it's generally just talking about how structs are overused, but it has one part where it says, structs don't want to be subclassed. Even if you insist on using structs, subclassing may not be the way. The docs don't recommend it as it creates an unused anonymous class. Instead, you are meant to assign it to a constant. This doesn't mitigate any of the problems I listed above, <laughs> like the, that you shouldn't use structs. But <laughs> So I don't know. That's the one. That's one thing anyway, but lots of different ways to do things, I guess. Yep, and he's right. The docs do recommend, it gives an example, customer equals struct.new name address. This is the recommended way to customize a struct. Subclassing an anonymous struct creates an extra anonymous class that will never be used. Mm-hmm. But then you have to write a new tracing. Well, you're going to have to do it anyway because somebody's doing that somewhere. Yeah, also to your point that we never quite got to, you were saying, like, doesn't this, isn't this just uh, so much machinery that you have to build? And yes, we've got a team of five of us working on this full time. And we're and it's basically my team has been brought on to augment a team of two that was working on this full time for for quite some time. But it's just it is going to be a useful tool to developers, and it, like it's the sort of thing that that you invest in when you're dealing with thousands of developers. Right. Sure, that makes sense. Because like another way to do it would just be to make that boundary HTTP. Right. Because <laughs> that's bad. it's very efficient. There's no machinery yeah. involved when you do that. <laughs> Well, I mean, you know, it's also like aside from my aside from my general opinions on that, the way that we're going about doing this is probably the step that we would take even if our end goal was to introduce HTTP as the boundary. Mm-hmm. There's no way we're going to do a big bang rewrite of everything in SOA. It needs to be something that that's done incrementally. So this is still going to be like, as far as I can tell, this will still be like a mono repo of mm-hmm. a single project. It's just it's, it's still a single Rails app, even right. It'll just have some extra uh, machinery around it to enforce module boundaries, basically. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, there's actually very little enforcing it in Shopify itself. Like, we're going to go in and make everything private constants. We're not really going to have any way to, like, enforce that if you add new constants in the future, they're private constants. Mm-hmm. But we will have this tool where, where you can look and see whether or not you're violating component boundaries or not. 
Well, you should also be able to ask the system for its, a list of its public constants, right? And then be able to tell, like, are these things yeah, we, namespaced right. in we a way? Yeah, we actually could absolutely add. The problem is most of these are at the top names. A lot of them are at the top level namespace. Okay. But if you made it so that you can't do that anymore, right? So you're like, no more top level namespace. I don't know if that's a reasonable thing to do. but Well, it's not anyway. because then what happens when a gem updates? Oh, right. Gems. Right. We could. For anything that's not top level, yes, we could absolutely, and we do this all the time, have a test case that basically we have a file. Here's the list of public constants. And if that, if that list doesn't match what's expected, the test fails. That's how we deal with deprecations. Whenever we're updating, the one of the first things we do is record all of the deprecation warnings and then have a test that's basically like if there's anything any deprecation warnings that appear that weren't in this list the test fails any deprecation warnings oh so it's like we've upgraded we got a whole bunch of deprecations um, even we want the process of upgrading right we want to make sure that we don't let anybody accidentally introduce some other deprecations right because of the like they're like well, i don't know there's a bunch of noise here i don't know if i added that deprecation or not keep moving right. on you know you added that deprecation and this tells right. you whether or not you added it and then as we get closer to being done with whatever upgrade, which we are done upgrading to 5.2. Hey, congratulations. We are 100% in production on 5.2, which is like, it's a big deal for us as an organization. I mean, it's partially we've gotten better upgrading and majorly Rails is just being more stable, but it's a big deal for us that the same app that was written on Rails 0.7, I think, or 0.4, has been upgraded to 5.2 before the final release of 5.2. Yeah, that's pretty cool to have what is probably the world's largest Rails app. Uh, definitely not the largest. Okay. Certainly the oldest. Okay. The world's oldest Rails app, oldest still existing Rails app, is still on the latest and greatest Rails version, which is pretty cool. Yeah. But anyway, so as we get closer to the end of whatever upgrade we're doing, we also then tend to switch deprecate warn to raise. Nice. Perfect. And just be like, yeah, no more deprecations. <laughs> I, I think that's really the only way to go about it, especially in a case where like people aren't running the test suite on their own machine, so they're not seeing these deprecations when they're running the test suite. Well, it's also our test suite might not hit everywhere that we hit deprecated code. Mm -hmm. So we have to do that so that we find out if we have any deprecations left in production. Right. And we had, I think we discussed one of these. I can't remember where it was like something was deprecated, but you would only ever see it if you started your app in production. Oh, right. And it was something to do with like the SSL options or something, I forget, or maybe yeah. HSTS headers or... Something weird like that. Yeah, something that you would only see in production. Yeah. But yeah, I don't know. It's an interesting project. I've been learning a lot about TracePoint, which is a thing that like I've always knew whenever people, are, it's usually Sam, whenever Sam and I are talking about some crazy Ruby thing, I, I, I've always sort of just known like, yeah, and you could totally do that with, with set trace funk. But I've never, I've never really spent that much time looking into like exactly what its capabilities are. The answer to that question is more or less my vague intuition of literally anything. <laughs> Because you can even, one of the other methods on TracePoint is binding. <laughs> so you can just get the binding of wherever this event occurred and mess with local, you, like you could, you could, if you want to set a trace point on call, and if that method name is accepts nested attributes for, change a local variable to, to screw with whoever decided to, to use accepts nested attributes for. <laughs> I constantly decide to use accepts nested attributes for, but I'm never excited about it. <laughs> Yeah, you know, it's funny. When I was uh, when I was learning Scala, I, I switched over a side project of mine to use Scala Play. I immediately mm -hmm. needed accepts nested attributes for. <laughs> <laughs> Don't they have like form ob like first class support for like an object that represents a form? And they do. And it turns out that for the thing where it's just literally accepts nested attributes for is exactly what you need. It's not a very ergonomic substitute. No, I think it is the number one thing that I feel bad about in Rails that I still do. I mean, it's one of the, it is definitely one of the ones where like, 
I say that you're not supposed to use it. And I acknowledge that there are legitimate places where it is the right tool for the job. Mm-hmm. And that any alternatives wouldn't just be more difficult, they would be more bug prone. Versus STI, where I, I don't think there's ever really a case where, no, this is actually the thing that you that you should be using. <laughs> And yes, I know that we did that, that we did talk about that time that you thought it felt good about using it. It's still, that project is still going. It's still running fine. My wife took the kids out like a couple weekends ago to uh, give me some time to work on my talk because I'm at, I'm at like peak stress point on my talk right now where I don't feel like I have enough material and I'm not far enough along. You have over a month left, don't you? Uh, No. Yeah, you do. No. When is it? When is it? No. It's March 28th today. I have like three weeks left. So, you know, and I like... I always have this goal in mind that the talk is written with at least two weeks to go. And then I have two weeks of like just preparing, just like giving the talk, tweaking it, trying again, tweaking it, getting to the point where I have much of what I want to say memorized as possible. But it, I would be very surprised if I make it because that means I have to finish this. I have to finish writing it in a week. I guess I could probably do it if I double down, but man. Whew. So she took the children out and was like, I'm going to give you like three hours at least to, to do what you can do. I'm like, all right, great. And so then I sat there and uh, I spent maybe the first half an hour. So I'm, I'm the type of person who generally, at least at the start of a talk, likes to just write and mm-hmm. not think about, like I just write like I was writing a blog post basically. Yeah. And I always think like, oh, this is great. I'm going to write the whole talk this way. But then eventually at some point I transition to like, I think I've got enough that I see where I'm going with this and I'll start and I switch over to Dexet and start doing things in Dexet. And so instead of just writing in Vim, I was like, what do they have for like, you know, what I'm doing is actually just kind of like assembling a story here. And I don't quite know the order of the story I want to tell. What I want to do is like write pieces of text and then put it together. And so then I started organi- like looking at writing apps for Mac OS and was like, oh, Ulysses, this looks nice. Oh, Scrivener for screenwriting. This is kind of like screenwriting. And like, <laughs> it's isn't like, moving bits of text around kind of one of Vim's strong suits? I guess, but I didn't want to... Th- I guess, yes, probably. You're missing the point. What I was doing was actually just delaying things. Also, ah, yes. Also, my gotcha. kitchen got very clean. And then the the <laughs> last thing I did, which I was like, this is now patently absurd, is I remembered a conversation we had where I was like, oh, uh, well, re- I remembered it because I had a, I ran into it on a client project where they were using, they're using Force SSL in a controller. And then I added the Flipper gem and the Flipper UI gem. With The Flipper UI gem is just an engine that runs and like gives you user interface for putting feature flags on and off. And so I added it, and then I realized when I went to it, it didn't force me over to HTTPS. And I was like, what is happening here? And it's because it doesn't inherit from application controller where force SSL is. So I was like, ugh. And I remembered for some reason when I was sitting there, I remembered that like I had complained about this in the past and I had just run into it again. And so instead of writing my talk, I wrote a pull request to Rails. <laughs> that oh, deprecates, that's the one that I, I forgot to look at. That deprecates force SSL and controllers. <laughs> Yeah, I, I honestly think that's fine. I mean, it's like just use config force SSL equals true. Yeah, there was some there's some good feedback in there about it, but I was kind of like, I think it's time. I think it, I, like it's just with everything that Google's doing to push people to use that to do that anyway. The fact that like users now expect this to be the default across things, I think it's. The if way everything to go. forced HTTPS, I would have never found out that I am over my data cap. <laughs> because that's how you find out you get a little injection into the page yep. that you're viewing yep they're man in the middle <laughs> the first time I, and it was funny i'd been over it for several days <laughs> it was finally i went to ruby doc or not ruby doc uh, r doc <laughs> was the first web page i've been to all weekend and all week that was uh not forcing me is to this a, your mobile device 
bandwidth cap? No, or? on my computer. Oh, wow. No, Comcast has has data caps now. Well, not in my market. They don't. Yeah, they do. Nope. It's national. Nope. 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 At least it's as of a few months national. ago. Hang on. Now I have to log in. <laughs> it's a terabyte. We'll play some music. Oh, I would. I've never gotten to a terabyte. Hang on. We looked at this in the Thoughtbot office a little while ago. I don't remember why. I, mean, I don't think it affects business customers. Right. I assume it doesn't affect business customers. I don't actually, for whatever reason, don't have my own password. Whatever. All right. I mean, that's basically what I have to do to get rid of the data cap is I think it's $60 a month, which basically means I pay the business customer price. You could just use less than a terabyte every month. Not when both my wife and I work from home and we are frequently remote pairing and I play video games. Yeah, the video games, I think, is probably, and the Twitch streaming are probably the... <laughs> I maybe use 100 gigs a month from the games. It's mostly that we both work from home and we remote pair a lot. I, re I remember when I had reason to look into this, I think my high for the last few whatever months was like 300 and something gigabytes. So that's like nothing almost. Yeah. No, I mean, I'm always over a terabyte. But, you know, uh -huh. I just want to point out to Comcast that they likely do have other ways to contact you that don't involve man in the middling HTTP traffic. Yeah. <laughs> they, you know, you know it's funny. When I finally saw their notification, they mm. called me immediately afterwards. <laughs> hmm. And we're, and we're like giving me all kinds of details and we're like if you want to talk to a representative which you know they started doing this before net neutrality was repealed mm -hmm. if they hadn't I would have you know even though I know that they've just got the script to deal with people like me but specifically the fact that that data sent from xfinity.com is not subject to your data cap right was illegal when they started doing this and is currently not illegal but hopefully that changes. All right. Like if they want a data cap, fine, but I don't use them for cable. There's no reason that their on-demand service should be getting special treatment from me or from them for me. It is, not like, it is not just a proxy for a separate service from them that I use. For me, it is just a service that happens to be owned by, by my ISP. But could you make an argument, and I, I don't want to do this. I really don't want to defend Comcast, so forget it. <laughs> I mean, even, if I, even if I was a cable subscriber, it doesn't matter. It's the internet. Like, right. it's, they're sending it over the internet. Yes, but you could argue that like it's not as expensive for them to send you stuff that is entirely contained in what is their network or something like that. Versus... Sure, but it's fine, but it means that they're inspect they are inspecting the traffic that I'm sending over the internet and are making differentiations in their business based on it. Like That's the opposite of what common carrier is supposed to be. Yeah, I mean, I'm on your side. I'm just, you know. Right, no, I, I know you are. <laughs> no, and I absolutely get that there are arguments for it. But I, I, I'm just saying, if they want to do data caps, I mean, if, if they legitimately believe that nobody in a million years is going to even come close to a terabyte, which is what they claim, then why would it matter if, if Xfinity.com is subject to their data cap or not? There's right. no way you're going to use enough data on there to, to matter. That makes That's sense. That's their point. fair point. Anyway, sorry. I, I, I got very uh, antsy. Just, I, and I was remote pairing at the time. And my pair is, you know, in Canada. And so, like, what's that? <laughs> what's the penalty for this? So this is my second courtesy month. So this <laughs> month, none. From now on, it's going to be $10 for every 50 gigabytes. Holy moly. If you're at a terabyte and you go over, you're, it stands to reason you're going to go over by more than a few 50 gigabytes. Yes. They, they did say it will max out at $200. $200 is an overage, not $200 is your total bill. I actually don't know. $200 I, is your total bill isn't like the end of the world. I overage, but you know what? Actually, given that $60 gets you unlimited, actually $200 for my total bill would make more sense. Mm -hmm. Like, since I could have paid them $60 to... But no, it is. you are right. It is probably $200 as an overage. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm, I don't want to stop. I don't want to keep using your bandwidth. <laughs> Next time we do the podcast, you're going to have to turn your video off. 
<laughs> I'm pretty sure Skype is not the biggest consumer. <laughs> you just have to start doing podcasts from remote locations, like s- sitting in your car outside of Starbucks or something. <laughs> my, my car does have unlimited 4G. Well, there you go. Just do it from your car, wherever you happen to be. I actually don't think I can tether my car. Is it just not allowed? I mean, I, yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't think there's a way to expose that in the UI. Yeah, I definitely can see that. Because if I owned a Tesla and I had unlimited 4G, I would definitely just make it my home internet connection. <laughs> right, and, and Tesla pays for it, is the right. thing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, I've done experiments before where, like, I've had, in the past, had such terrible Wi-Fi throughout my house. Because when I lived in Somerville, which is the most densely populated city in New England, there was just so much noise in common Wi-Fi frequencies and on all of the channels, basically, that it was impossible to get a very good Wi-Fi signal. And I would constantly get better speeds overall from my LTE connection. Mm -hmm. And so I did briefly consider switching over, but the latency on LTE is much higher, even with better speeds. In Canada, I always got better speeds just tethering on my phone than using my house's internet. Although that was because the modem they made me use was was terrible. And in Canada, you cannot use your own modem. In Canada, modem owns you. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, but that's it. Okay. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm slash 149. As always, ratings and reviews on iTunes are much appreciated. If you have feedback about this episode or any of our other episodes, you can tweet us at underscore bike shed, email us at hosts at bikeshed.fm or leave a comment on our website. Thanks for listening to the Bike Shed, and we'll see you next time. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. We are experienced designers and developers who turn your idea into the right product. With local studios in Boston, San Francisco, New York, London, Austin, and Raleigh, let's build something great together.